Hello, everyone. My name is Helen. I said that again. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to be up here. Um, I'm also like kind of nervous because this is my first time preaching here, but I feel a little more comfortable than preaching up at the Crestmont campus because there's so many more people there. So I feel I feel okay. All right. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you to Savannah. Um, yes. Listen, I was putting my slides in and they took a lot longer than I expected because formatting and stuff. And I took up all her time to practice with the worship band, and I feel 100% bad. And also, not all of my info on the slides got into the slides. So that's why I have my computer here, because I have to look at some of my slides. Okay. And I have a lot of them. All right. So let me ask you guys, um, who here thinks God is good? Oh, yeah. I do. <laughs> do you truly believe that he is good even when things are rough? Because I know that's a hard question for a lot of people. Because when things get rough, it's a little hard to really believe that God is still good. But we're going to talk about that today. Um, so when I was in elementary school um, and I went to church, there was this thing we did. And I don't know if other churches did it. I don't know if you guys ever been exposed to it. But the preacher or whoever's on stage would say, um, when I say, like, God is good, you say all the time. And when I say all the time, you say God is good. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to throw this in here um, all morning. So it keeps you participating in the sermon awake and also gives me some time to really say, like, God is good. Because we're really going to talk about that today. So God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. Women, God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. And men, God is good. All the time. And all the time. I feel like the, the men won that one, so let's work on that. All right. Um, so. Yeah. So I'm going to be looking at my notes a lot because there's a lot I have written down because I am going to talk about like historical context here, so bear with me. I'm not going to be looking up a lot, um, but just. Yeah, so if I'm not looking at you, I'm sorry. All right, so back in early March, Joel had sent out a planning center email asking a bunch of us to preach. Um, and I saw that the theme was the Exodus, and I was like, cool, that's fun. Uh, and then I didn't really look at the passage of the sign or like the date. I just kind of was like, okay, cool, I'm preaching, whatever. And then later that night, I like woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't fall asleep. So I pulled out my phone, I looked at the passage, and I was like, oh, cool, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kicking us off. <laughs> I'm the first one down here. I was like, nice. Uh, not, not, not too bad. I was like, it's fine. If I mess up, like, it's okay. There'll be better people after me, so whatever. <laughs> but then I saw the passage I was assigned, and I was like, oh, no. Because, warning, there is a lot of crap in this passage. Um, there's oppression, slavery, racism, um, people killing babies. So it's a lot of heavy things that we all don't like um and it's all in here so so exciting right i was like this is a lot but you know what when i was reading that and i was like god what do you want me to say with this this is this is a lot um i heard the lord say i do not waste your pain um, and then i heard the word redemption so we're going to talk about the lord not wasting our pain and his redeeming power and how good he is all right so um, I'm just going to start with like some historical context and then I'm going to read the passage and then we'll go into like the specifics. So this is a lot of historic. I, I weaned out a lot because there was so much. Um, I kind of just kept what was more prevalent to this passage. Uh, but yeah, so 
if you want. Or yeah. Uh, so if you you can go to the next slide. If you grew up um, in a Christian home, you probably watched this movie called Prince of Egypt. Um, that was all I was allowed to watch as a kid, really, because my parents didn't like us watching anything that was not. Uh, wholesome Christian content. So we have this on VHS and we watched it like every night. Um, you can go to the next slide. So you remember this scene and uh, if you were my age, which was like maybe like seven and you watched this, you'd have nightmares about this scene specifically because it was very, very dark. <laughs> and then, and this is also part of our passage, by the way. And then, or you watch Veggie Tales. <laughs> and um, this one... <laughs> message was great for little kids but all of this like they're great cinematic things funny um serious but there was so much more to exodus that i didn't realize as a kid growing up because this was my my worldview of exodus versus the truth and the depth of who god is in exodus um so yeah uh you can go to the next slide oh (laughs) you have to click the background one All right, so Exodus is a Latin word derived from the Greek exodos, the name given to the book by those who translated it into Greek. The word means exit or departure. So that wasn't the original name of the book, actually. Um, in Hebrew, the book is named after its first two words, Wa'ela Shemoth, which is these are the words of. Um, so it's actually a continuation of Genesis. Um, they weren't actually meant to be separate books. They were actually just be like one fluid motion. So the first five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all five are called the Pentateuch. That's what we know it as. Um, If you don't, you know, Pentateuch, uh, $5 million word. Um, So those five books were just supposed to like roll into each other and just be like one continuation of the story versus different books. Um, So in Exodus, we, we start, we pick up where... Um, everyone's dead, and then <laughs> they're in Egypt, <laughs> so being sl- enslaved. Um, yeah, so, where are we? Yep, you can go to the next one. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, so there, yeah, next one. Sorry, my slides did not all fit on one, so this is... All right, so several statements in Exodus indicate that Moses wrote certain sections of the book, so... Um, Get my handy name while I'm here. I'm going to read those three specific verses. Um, This is Exodus 17, verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. So there's just several verses in Exodus that kind of point to like him having written certain parts of it, um, if not all. All right, um, next slide. According to 1 Kings 6.1, the Exodus took place 480 years ago, before the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. Since that year was circa 966 BC, it has been traditionally held that the Exodus occurred circa 1446. The 300 years in Judges fits comfortably um, in this time span. In addition, although Egyptian chronology related to the 18th dynasty remains somewhat uncertain, some recent research tends to support the traditional view that two of this dynasty's pharaohs, Tutmos III and his son, Amenhotep II, were the pharaohs of the oppression and the exodus, respectively. 
Um, on the other hand, uh, the appearance of the name Ramses in Exodus 1.11 has led many to the conclusion that the 19th dynasty pharaohs, Sati I and his son, Ramses II, were the pharaohs of the oppression and Exodus, respectively. Furthermore, archaeological evidence of the destruction of numerous Canaanite cities in the 13th century BC has been interpreted as proof that Joshua's troops invaded the Promised Land in the century. Um, these and similar lines of argument lead to date of the Exodus circa 1290. So really all that means is it happened a really long time ago and <laughs> it happened. <laughs> There's proof it happened at some point, but it happened. Um, and then this is really cool. So Exodus lays a foundational theology in which God reveals his name, his attributes, his redemption, and his law and how he is to be worshipped. It also reports the appointment and work of Moses as a mediator of the Sinaitic Covenant, describes the beginning of the priesthood in Israel, defines the role of the prophet, and relates how the ancient covenant relationship between God and his people came under new administration. Um, and that covenant, I will read it. a lot of post notes so I apologize okay so this is from Genesis 17 2 and it says that I may make my covenant between me and you and my and may multiply multiply you greatly um, so spoiler alert there's a lot of multiplication in the first few verses of this uh, book. all right so yeah, um, God is good? All the time. All the time? God is good. Perfect. All right, we're going to read our passage now. Um, if you will all stand with me. I do love standing when we read the word because it's in reverence of God. All right. Um, so these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, and Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread ab abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and Pua, and the Pua, what? and then Pua? When you serve as midwives, midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do that as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. 
The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his, as his wife a Levite woman, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him, took for him a basket and made, made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child was older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. All right. Um, you may all sit down. Amen. All right. I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that the story of oppression doesn't end in oppression. It ends in you winning. Um, so we just claim your victory today. And uh, I just pray that that would be in our hearts today versus any of the words I can say, um, that your victory and your presence and your power would be um, what is left. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Um, so the ancient Egyptians were famous. You don't have to put that up yet or infamous um, for their proud sense of racial superiority towards all other people. It isn't surprising to see them afraid and discriminating against the strong minority group in their midst, which looked as if it would not be a minority very long. So they thought they were superior. They see the Hebrews multiplying greatly, and now they're scared that the people that they enslaved, who probably don't want them to be um, slave masters anymore, uh, seeing them get large and probably throw a riot. Um, and also at that time, the Egyptians feared invasion from the Hittites of the north, and so they were kind of scared that the Hebrews would end up joining forces with the Hittites and then just caving on in on them and destroying their entire civilization. Um, and since we don't know exactly when this forced labor began, we don't know how long it lasted. Some estimate the slavery lasted 284 years, others 134 years. Once again, all we know is a really long time and lasted like centuries. Um, when they in the Israelites were enslaved, they actually built a lot of the famous great cities and monuments of Egypt. So the things that you see most likely were built by Hebrews. Um, there's a famous wall painting on an ancient brick, ancient tomb from Thebes, um, the tomb of the overseer of brick-making slaves during the reign of Thutmose III. The painting shows some, such overseers armed with heavy whips. Their rank is denoted by the long staff held in their hands and the Egyptian hieroglyphic determinative of the head and neck of a giraffe. I don't know if the picture made it through. 
maybe? Yeah, okay, so that, that was the best picture I could find of what was like related to this, but as you can see, they're laying brick, and that's what they did. All right. I'm kind of glad there was nothing more graphic in this photo because, yeah, no, we don't need to see people. Oh my goodness, okay, this is too much. All right, so now we're going to talk about God's big picture for the Israelites. We're done with the context, and now we're going into God's big picture. So the elongated enslavement in Egypt. I mean, if I said God's plan was for them to be slaves, how many of you would like raise your eyebrows at me and think, are you crazy? Like, that's what God wants for people? Um, let me tell you, it's interesting because even though it sounds horrible, God had a plan, even in their enslavement, their elongated enslavement. So fun fact, um, the promised land is Canaan, um, and God did not want the Israelites to intermarry with the Canaanites because his people, you know, um, there's that theme in all of scripture where he's like, don't intermarry, marry within, you know. Uh, so yeah, so if they had, if God had allowed them to enter into Canaan before they were enslaved for centuries, uh, the intermarrying would have happened. They would, they would not have been as large of a number of Israelites. Um, so the the promise that he promised Abraham, where he said, "I'm going to make your your number many," like that wouldn't have happened if they were already given to the promised land. So kind of cool. Like even though they're enslaved, God had a plan and a purpose. Um, yeah. So like it, Egypt was a mother womb to the Israelites in this time. So just kept birthing and birthing. Um, more and more and so like that would not have been possible if they had already been in their promised land so god had a plan um and the egyptians were so racist that they didn't want to intermarry with the hebrews uh they didn't want to intertwine their lives with the slaves so even in that god had a plan because these racist egyptians don't want to have relations with the hebrews so there was no intermarrying um so egypt was like the perfect place for them to multiply and multiply and multiply before they went into the promised land all right so the growth in the face of affliction has consistently been the story of god's people um, throughout all ages even now um, the more they are afflicted the more they grow um, as the ancient christian writer tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church um, we can see this playing out in the global church today. So I don't know how many of you know much about the underground church in countries like North Korea or um, other Muslim countries where you cannot proclaim that you know Jesus or love Jesus because you will be killed and imprisoned. Um, so fun fact, I, I, if you don't know, I'm Korean. <laughs> so um, I come from a Korean church background. And one of the things that we very regularly um, talked about and prayed about was the underground church in Korea and in North Korea. And so one time we were in church and our pastor was like, I'm going to shut off all the lights, turn off the AC. This is in Georgia. If you've never been to Georgia, it's humid, hot in February. So like it, there's ne it's never cold. So it was midsummer. He was like, turn off all the lights, turn off the AC. Like, we're going to sit in here.
for like a couple hours and you're gonna get a taste of what it feels like to be part of the underground church because they meet in literal holes in the ground. So they meet in dusty, dirty, humid, hot climates just to worship God. And they are growing vigorously. Um, maybe not so much here in the Western side of the world, but in the Eastern side, you will hear stories of many Christians coming to, to faith in countries that um, they can't even proclaim that they know Jesus. Um, so praise God for that. God is good? All the time. All right. So in the midst of the cruel and harsh service that the Hebrews were undertaking, uh, life must have seemed hopeless for them. And the idea that God was working out his plan must have seemed very far. Uh, but it was still true. So they probably were definitely asking God, hey, what happened to all these things you promised our ancestors? Why are we here? And God was like, I have a plan. Just wait. Um, if you've ever worked with children or if you have children, your kids will ask, why aren't we there yet on a road trip or like wherever? And they're like, why isn't this happening yet? You said you'd give me candy after I ate my dinner. Where's my candy? And you're just like, wait, it's coming. And they want that good thing, but they're not seeing it. And they might throw a fit. Israelites threw fits multiple times. Um, long story short, yeah. So it was coming, but they weren't seeing it, and they were getting discouraged, especially because they were enslaved. Um, which let's, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what God does. All right. So here we can see the command of Pharaoh is consistent with Satan's plan of Jewish hatred through the centuries as an attack against God's Messiah and ultimate plan for Israel and his plan of redemption, Satan knew that the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the one who would crush his head um, in Genesis 3.15, would come from the children of Israel. Therefore, he tried to destroy the whole nation in one generation by ordering all the male children killed. But we all know the ending to that story, and we know that Satan can try to thwart the plans of the Lord, but he will never be successful. Because God's purpose was to bless Israel and fulfill his role for them in his eternal plan, no amount of affliction could defeat his purpose. The Egyptians tried their best through cruel slavery, but it did not work. Um, the principle of Isaiah 54, 17 proved true. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. The wickedness of the Egyptians couldn't, could hurt the children of Israel, but could not defeat God's plan for them. So, can't hurt them, but cannot defeat God's plan. We, we sang about how God is our champion. It's true. He cannot be defeated. He never was and he never will be. If the battle were just between Pharaoh and the people of Israel, Pharaoh would have definitely won. But throwing God into that mix made it so that he did not. So um, isn't it awesome that we have a God who fights for us and defends us to the point that we might lose, but he does not ever lose. God is good all the time. I hope that's sticking in your head because we're getting even closer to talking about that. All right. So let's take a minute to acknowledge the midwives. Um, this isn't a sermon about them or the good things I did, but praise God for them. Um, they were the reason why the boys were able to live and they were able to grow. And one super cool fact that I didn't know before studying was that midwives had that occupation because they couldn't have children of their own and so if you don't remember the scripture it says God had blessed them with families of their own because he they obeyed him and 
were faithful to him, so he gave them what they wanted, and which was children. So, yeah, I thought that was beautiful and awesome because I didn't know that fact that midwives were midwives because they couldn't have kids. But then God blessed them with the children. Um, so, though generally we are called to obey the government and honor civic rulers, we are never called to put government above God's will. And so here the midwives followed that word. They didn't put government over God's will, even though they obviously probably were afraid of Pharaoh and what he could do. They chose to trust in God and let him take charge. And in that, they got blessed with families. So, yay. Um, yeah. All right, we're going to talk about Moses' birth. The birth of Moses. All right, so in chapter 2, it starts with Moses' birth and talks about that. So the parents of Moses did not hide Moses for months because of the natural parental instinct to protect their child, which was obviously something that came into play. They, they loved their child. They wanted to see that the child would be okay and safe. Um, but most importantly, in Hebrews 11.23, it describes the faith of Moses' parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So their choice to, to hide Moses for three months and then put him in a basket and ship him off wasn't because they just wanted the best for him. It was because they knew God had a plan and that he was faithful so that they could keep trusting in him with their child. Yeah, so his parents put him in a basket and put him in the river. Um, and in a literal sense, Moses' mother listened to what Pharaoh said because she put her son in the river. Um, but she was smart and she put him in a waterproof basket that ended up saving his life. So she listened to Pharaoh, but not quite what he was expecting. Um, so when Moses' mother let go of the boat, made of bulrushes, which kind of like cattails, um, she gave up some, I, I don't think I put that picture in there. There was a picture, but there's a, I, I told you, my slides did not all make it, sorry. Um, but she gave us something precious, trusting that God would take care of it and perhaps find a way uh, to give it back to her, uh, which, spoiler alert, he does. So she hides her baby for three months, puts her baby in a basket, ships him down the river, and she truly trusts that God will use this for good and believes that maybe like it'll be returned to me. And his sister follows him down the river, Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby, and she's like, oh, probably should find a baby like, to nurse this ba mom to nurse this baby. So his sister's like, hey, I know a person who could take care of this baby. Uh, spoiler, his actual mom. So she takes him and he, she is paid to take care of her own child. So she trusted in God to do this thing and he in return would trust her to, to more than she could imagine to keep her baby, number one, to spare him from death and also to be able to raise him um, freely at this point because now they know that this is going to be Pharaoh's child uh, or Pharaoh's daughter's child in a sense but she was free to raise him and not have to like hide him like she did for three months so God had this horrible situation of a Hebrew baby being born into a time of oppression and pain and then orphaned and alone beautifully planned for the deliverance of both Moses and eventually for the people of Israel and then for all of those who come after him um, he skillfully guided the parents of Moses, the currents of the Nile, and the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to further his plans and purpose. So he used all the things, and he had a perfect plan. God knew what he was doing, and as Redeemer, he showed off his abilities by using both the clever initiative of Moses' family and need of Pharaoh's daughter, 
uh, and God arranged a way for Moses, his mother, to train him in his early years and be paid for it. If that isn't God's provision, mercy and redemption, I don't know what is, because she was paid to train him in their beliefs and in their culture and in their heritage. So he grew up knowing those things. If he had just stayed in Pharaoh's house, he would not have learned anything about who he was. Um, so she was able to teach him all these things. Yeah, God is good. All the time. All right. So, how does this apply to us today? How many of you feel like you are like deeply oppressed, like the Israelites were in this passage? I'm so glad. Oh, <laughs> I was gonna say I was gonna let no one raise their hand, but thanks for all for real. Um, yeah, I don't feel personally like I am oppressed uh, in a lot of ways, but definitely not this bad. Like, I feel like I could freely be myself and whatever, and not be super duper afraid to have a child and have to hide it. Um, and this can honestly feel a lot removed from our lives today. We, we have it pretty easy. Um, I mean, there are hard things, there are things that happen, but we're, we're not facing this. We're not facing what the underground church is. Um, we, can, we can meet here freely, open our doors, sing as loud as we want, have our music blasting, and no one's gonna come in and arrest us for that and kill us, you know? Right. But let me tell you something. What, what God told me when I was reading this passage, he does not waste your pain. So we all face pain and suffering and hurt. Um, we all go through things. We all have our hard days and things that happen to us that might have, should have never happened to us, things that we might have done that cause some consequences, but God doesn't waste that. God doesn't just let you go through that for no reason. He has a plan. He has a purpose. I love what we read earlier in our reading at the end. It was like, he has a plan for you. He does. He has a plan for you in your life. So the definition of oppression is prolonged unjust treatment or control and you know what you know what? We, we're not oppressed really but we do have times where we are suffering and feeling that oppression from the enemy or from any little aspect of life um, and God did not waste the oppression of the Israelites and equally he did not waste our pain he does not waste our pain so there's so much you can take away from this message. You can take away putting God before government or being like the midwives in bravery and fear the Lord or being deliverer like Moses or being like Moses' parents. These are all great things. But there's a lot more um, you can take away, and that can be something um, more deep and meaningful, which is that the main character of the story is not Moses. It's not the midwives. It's not Pharaoh. It's not... Moses' parents or his sister. It's not the Israelites as a whole. The main character of the story is God. That's right. This passage isn't about how great the people were or the things that they did, um, which were honorable and great. Awesome. Yes, they were awesome. But that does not equal how great our God is. And then God is good. All the time. Yeah, this is about the God we worship. The God who created the earth, who flooded the earth and spared a family, the one who pursues the Israelites time and time again, the one who delivered Moses at birth, who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, who sent his son to deliver you and me from sin, oppression, and darkness. This is his story, and this is about his character. He is good. I asked you earlier in the beginning, who really, like, do you believe God is good? Um, that is his character. He is good, and he is redeemer. He is deliverer. He is the great I am. 
This passage points to the very nature of God's goodness and mercy and who he is. And don't take what I'm about to say lightly, because many of you don't actually know me. But if you know me pretty well, I'm very pessimistic, <laughs> and I, I think I'm a realist. Um, I like to believe that the world kind of sucks and everything is going to burn. John preached about that one time. I was like, yeah, everything's going to be burned. <laughs> That's kind of how I have an outlook on life. Um, you can ask my husband. Whenever we make plans, I'm like, oh, but we're going to get in a car crash and die. We can't do anything. I know. I have the worst thoughts. I go to the worst place possible. And so I, I have no optimistic outlook in life. I like all that. I'm saying this to preface what I'm about to say. For someone like me who doesn't believe good, good can come out of anything, I truly believe that God has a plan and a purpose for the things that happen that feel horrible to have happened. Um, I truly believe that God can take our pain and use it for something good. He doesn't just leave it as pain. He redeems it and he makes it into something for his glory. He takes beauty into ashes. He collects our tears in a jar. He is not a God who wastes our pain. He knows what we go through. He feels what we feel. And he does not let us just sit in that and waste it. He uses it for his glory. Even though things might seem hopeless in your situation, um, I could probably ask all of you if you're going through something, and you probably are. I'm not going to ask you because that's personal. Um, but we're all going through something. We're, we have all faced something in our past. We all face something currently, and we're going to face something in the future. And it might seem hopeless. It might go years, and it might feel hopeless. But there is fruit coming. It may not seem like anything is happening right now, but God always has a plan. Let me tell you, the Israelites, <laughs> Moses didn't even see the promised land. <laughs> he didn't get to be in the promised land. He actually did not get to go in. And they, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. So they, it took a while for them to get to the promised land. Moses didn't even make it. And even after that, there were so many things that God had promised that hadn't come, come to fruition yet. And um, the Av, we went through the book of Malachi together. And that's the last book of the Old Testament. Um, and in Malachi, they were asking God, where are all these things you promised our ancestors? And this was like, five, six hundred years after um, the original exodus. So they were like, it's been centuries, where is, where is your promise? And they didn't see it, and God was like, listen, I don't lie. I'm, I'm not a man who should lie. And he, he, his promises were coming. And they did come in Jesus, and they will come again in the second coming. And so we might not see the fruit of everything that we labor for, that we cry over at night, but God has a plan for all of that. And we will see it when we're in heaven. We'll see all the good things and we're like, yeah. But maybe not in this life. We might not see it all come to fruition or get all the things that he has promised. But there is fruit coming. Um, and your story's not over. The story's not over in general. So you might feel like it's hopeless. You might feel like this is the end. I know there was points in my life where I was like, this is the end. My life is over, and I'm like, this is it. And God said, nope, your story's not over yet. My story's not over yet. The story is not over. Your story's not over. Today, I'm telling you, if you feel like you're at your wit's end, it's not over. It's not the end. It can't be, because our God is good. God is good. All the time. All the time. He is good. So he cannot just let this end here. 
The pain doesn't just, is not the end. That's not where it stops. There's joy coming in the morning. God has a plan. So, who is God? God is Redeemer. Um, he fulfills his promises. And he only speaks truth and his ways are perfect. Per- perfect. I have some Bible verses that didn't make it to the screen, so I'm going to read them. So he fulfills his promises. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as so my count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Second Peter 3 9. And he only speaks truth, and his ways are perfect. This is this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord pr- proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalms 1830. So the Bible talks about who God is all all over. And if we truly believe that God is this person that he said he is, we shouldn't feel like our pain and suffering is for nothing. Because if we know that our God is redeemer, our God is deliverer, from this passage we read today, from all the passages we ever read, we should know that there there is good coming. God is going to do something. He's not just going to sit on his throne um, and do nothing. I don't know if you guys know anything about like other, like religion stuff, but there's like a religion called deism, which believes that God like created things and he like left it for the people to decide what to do and he just hangs back. That's not our God. Our God is very present in our lives. He shows up time and time again, every day, every moment, and he redeems and he he brings beauty from the ashes. Okay, so I don't want to share too much about what happens later in Exodus because there are awesome preachers coming to preach about those things. But the little baby Moses, he doesn't say a baby. He grows up. He builds character. He does stupid things. And he eventually leads his people out of Egypt. And I was reading commentary. They called him Deliverer. And I thought that was so powerful because it's true. He is Deliverer for his people. But reality is there's a Deliverer who comes after Moses that is the Deliverer. Same as Jesus, by the way, if you didn't know. <laughs> so let me tell you, there, there are some similarities in Jesus and, and Moses' story. So they were both born in a time of oppression. Um, Pharaoh ordered to kill the Israelites in Moses' time. Herod ordered to kill the, the boys, baby boys in Jesus' time because they, he knew that Jesus was coming. Um, the midwives protected the children in, Israel, in, the, in Moses' time. In Jesus' time, the Magi protected the identity of baby Jesus. Um, I don't if you guys don't know the story, they, Herod's like, oh, go find this baby. And they're like, okay. And they go, and then God's like, don't go back to Herod. Because he was like, oh, come report back to me, like, what you see, and like, where he is. And they never go back to him, which they protected Jesus' identity in that. Um, Moses is in Egypt at this time. Jesus' family flees to Egypt. Cool. <laughs> and then Moses delivers his people, and Jesus delivers all people. So there are very similar characteristics of Jesus in Moses, but Moses isn't Jesus. He delivered his people, but that wasn't the end of the story because there was so much more that happened after. We're here today because there's still so much more that Jesus is going to do. Um, yeah, so. Where did I leave? Sorry, guys. So, Jesus ends up redeeming not just the people after him, 
um, not just the people he would the time period he was born into, but he delivered and redeemed the past of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, Moses, David, even the people that came after them, in between them, and then the people that came after Jesus, like you and me. He redeems our past. He has a hope and a plan for our future. Um, it doesn't end with oppression. We can see that from Exodus. It doesn't end in them just being slaves. That would be a terrible story. But it doesn't end there. They make it out. There's hardship along the way, which there's going to be hardship along the way, even in your healing journey. It's not, it's not over, but there's going to be so much um, there. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about you guys, but I really like comparing like scars with people. Um, and I have a scar on my knee. This is a super story, but I have a point. I have a scar on my knee that came from me foolishly chasing after an ice cream truck with my friend in New York when I was in fifth grade. Um, we really wanted those dip and dots. So we were chasing the ice cream truck, and I foolishly put on these high heel platform sandals that didn't fit me because they were not mine. I was still very young. They were my sisters. And one of the heels was broken. The souls. So I was running, and the soul gave up. I tripped, skinned my knee, horrible, horrible pain. And we didn't have any band-aids or alcohol at home, and my parents were on their way home. They got home, and so my mom um, makeshift some, or she used Listerine to clean my wound. So yeah, so painful. Like I was already in so much pain, crying. She poured Listerine. I swear. Our neighbors probably thought like my parents were like abusing me because it was so painful. And I don't just tell that story just to be funny. It is very funny. I actually look at it in amusement because it was a hilarious time. I really didn't think I was gonna live. I was a child. I was like, this is over. This is it. This is this is my end. I was like, this wound is gonna fester and I'm gonna lose my leg. Everything bad is gonna happen. That's that's how I think. But guess what? My leg's fine. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm alive. And. I want to challenge you all to look at your wounds in your life internally and brag about God because he brought you out of those things. You can look at the scars in your life and say, I remember that. And I can smile now because God did something with that. It's still there. I can still very much remember it, but I can also remember what Jesus did. Um, a few months ago, Steve led us in a time prayer. I'm closing now. I promise. Um, and... It's been, I've been going through a healing journey of my own, um, multiple healing journeys. It's not over, it's never over. Um, but very deep um, wound surfaced while he was leading us into in the restoration prayer. And a memory popped into my mind. And this is a memory that has surfaced a lot <laughs> in the past couple of years since I graduated college. Um, something in my college years spurred these memories from my childhood that I had deeply, deeply suppressed that I did not know I had. And so this, this memory keeps popping up and it's painful, it's horrible, I hate it. And um, Steve was leading us in prayer and he said, I believe God is showing a few of you a memory from your childhood or from your past that's painful and he wants to show you where he is in that memory. And just like that, he was like, ask Jesus where he is. Just like that, I said, Jesus, where are you? So like, I've asked you this so many times in this memory, and I still don't know. And in that memory, I saw him. I saw him scoop me up and hug me. And 
that memory has not haunted me since. Um, praise God. But the power of that is God is in the moments when it's painful. He's there. He's not, he's not leaving you alone, I promise. He's always there. And I believe that Jesus is going to show you where he is in the moments that you feel like he's not around. When you're asking, God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? He's there. He hears you. He's going to hold you. He's going to pick you up. He's going to take that painful memory and use it for his glory. It's not just because I'm a positive person I'm saying this, because I'm not. I'm saying this deeply, knowing who God is, his character. There's no way he's not going to take what you're going through today, what you're going to go through, what you went through, and redeem it. He is redeemer. And don't let me say this make you think like, oh, I don't need to think about my pain. Think about it. Feel it. It's real. Jesus felt pain. We can feel it too. But it's not about the pain. It's about our powerful God. It's not about the Israelites' um, oppression that they face. It's about the God that delivered them. It's, a, it's about the God that delivers us. The same God they worship is the same God we worship. And if we can believe that he can do that for them, he can do it for us.